Hi everyone, welcome to Type Talks. Today we have an INTJ careers panel. And so Jasper, would you like to tell us a bit about you? My name is Jasper Dix and my formal career background or my formal training is in business related fields, but I have focused all of my professional time on working with nonprofits and various social justice causes. Uh, I guess you could actually trace my, my earliest work aspirations to freelance tech support that I was doing as a teenager. <laughs> and I, my path has been unconventional and I can, I can share that a bit later, but um, yeah, that's, that's me. Excellent. Jasper is a part of our personality hacker cohort and Michael likes to call Jasper his twin. So they're twinning today. And so Michael, would you like to tell us a bit about, yeah. Yeah, um, Michael, thanks for having me on again. Um, the job history is too too varied to go through. <laughs> I've worked I've worked many many jobs, um, everything from construction to entertainment to sales to product management, project management, um, and lots of gigs in in between. So I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But I. Um, I've been all over the place. That brings a lot of information and insights for this panel. Yeah, and so, Angelina? Hi, um, so, so my career history, when I was young and didn't know what I wanted to do, I did all sorts of things as well. So um, I did various admin jobs and temporary jobs and didn't want to commit to anything and uh, worked in the cinema, which was my favorite job. And um, then once I'd done my psychology degree, I realized that's what I wanted to do. So um, through various mental health jobs and things like that, I've ended up being a business psychologist and I've been self-employed doing that for about 20 years. And so Angelina is also the co-founder of Type Pro and she also wrote a book, Shadows of Type, I believe as well. And it's, it was really good, I read it. And Lauren? Hi. Um, so my career path, um, I'm, st well, I'm still relatively young. In college, I primarily worked as a uh, in the medical field as a pharmacy intern. Um, and I guess we could get into that later. But currently, I work as a clinical pharmacist in a hospital in critical care. Uh, so primarily rotating throughout um, intensive care units. Sounds very, very busy. I like your dedication incredibly busy but it keeps me uh, entertained mm, nice nice and Bernadette mm, hello my name's Bernadette um, in terms of career history um, in high school I owned a bakery because I like baking and I like cooking um, I graduated in September 2019 and um, worked started working in December 2019 um, in sales, so working for various tech companies in the Bay Area. Currently, I'm a sales development representative manager for a cloud security company. Very, very cool. And Chris? Hey, everyone. Um, Chris, um, when I got out of high school, I worked in retail for six years. Uh, and about halfway through that, I decided I wanted to get into psychology. That's when I started 
I went and got my MBTI certification first. I started doing coaching on the side and then I decided I wanted to get a degree in psychology. And then I went and did that. Um, and now I volunteer in research as I continue to do coaching and I have applications in for research assistant positions. So I'm trying to get into research as a, as a formal job. Sounds right. And so a lot of people on these panels are some of my classmates from Personality Hacker. And also there are some rad typology books that are written by some of the members too, like Angelina has a great book and you should go check it out. And Azure Psych and Michael have YouTube channels. So yeah, check out Countertype and Azure Psych. I just wanted to promo a bit. All right. And hi, my name is Joyce and I'm a certified MBTI master practitioner and I facilitate the instrument in organizations. I also offer coaching services and I help people figure out their best fit type. And so INTJs. I'm wondering about how INTJs might approach work differently than other types. What are some speculations you have? Well, I can only I can only speak for myself, but as I said, when I was young, I didn't really want to settle on something because I knew I wanted to find the, the something one thing that I wanted to have as a continuum, like a like a a career and get expertise in. I should also probably add I'm an Enneagram five, so you know, that goes with the with the territory. So it was important for me to land on the right thing. And all the time I was doing admin work and that, I, just, I, I really, it was just a job for money. I never um, found any value in it for myself, which probably sounds a bit um, dismissive. But yeah, and I, I would go for interviews and they would say things like, if we employ you to do our admin, how will you change our company <laughs> at the time? I had no emotional intelligence and I would just say things like it's only doing admin it's hardly going to change your company and then wonder why I didn't get the job so um yeah I think it was always important for me to find something that really really grabbed my interest that's just me I actually think everyone on this panel is an Enneagram 5 as well <laughs> well that's quite interesting because a lot of um INTJs that I know are ones so yeah, probably five and one are the most popular INTJ Enneagram types. Similar to Angela, whenever I was looking for jobs, um, I've always tried to find something that had purpose and intention and um, something that I where I could contribute to, to others or the greater whole um, while really advancing myself in the process. Um, so Oftentimes, I, I feel as I was looking for something, again, with, with intention. Um, it, as far as it goes to, like, approaching my job, I am somebody that it tends to look at trends rather than a point in time. Um, for example, uh, if a patient were to have a certain lab value in a day, I never look at that day in time. I look at it relative to the whole and see where it's trending, where it's going. Um, and using that, I almost make my recommendations to the team based off of that. Um, and so trends are something that I, and patterns, I guess, are something that I focus on. Um, additionally, I think it helps me see other people's perspectives in the sense that sometimes there are medical providers that have um, a predilection for um, a specific 
they practice a certain way. And so oftentimes I, there's usually reason behind that. And so I tend to ask a lot of questions and get curious and try to step into their perspective and sometimes even um, strengthen their, their argument. Um, and then sometimes also to disprove it as well. Um, so, so that's something that I do in my job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with the introverted intuition being very focused on the holistic whole picture and also the, the trend noticing how they project into the future, how the whole picture projects into some sort of ends. I think one thing that stands out to me, at least when I'm looking for things that are interesting at work, is going to be independence and position. Um, you know, the more or the less that I need to rely on someone else telling me what to do or telling me what time I can work, the better. And that's only become even more evident as I became self-employed the past few years. Because it's like, I can't imagine what it's going to be like going back to a normal job where I don't make my own schedule. And that's going to be a bit of a, a culture shock then. But um, for me, I think that's probably the most important thing is it being an interesting job to me personally, and then having the freedom and independence to choose what I can do within that job. Mm -hmm. What defines an interesting job for you? So what have you found interesting? What, what provokes your interest? I think that's something that's kind of grown and changed over time, but it is something that I found while working through my mundane resale job. Cause that certainly wasn't it. Like I wasn't interested in that. And I, I juggled possibilities around in my, my head. I have an uncle who's a very successful hotel manager. Like he went to college to be a hotel manager, six figure salary, that sort of thing. And I, I almost like went under his wing as an apprentice at one point. And I was like, no, this isn't it. But then I discovered like type and MBTI. And once I found that I started gravitating towards things in that field, like coaching which is very similar to psychology in general. Then I started pursuing psychology. Now I'm pursuing research. And I think that's just going to depend on the INTJ. And that's going to be different from INTJ to INTJ. I've seen some INTJs who are very into the more sciencey stuff. And I've seen some who are into like arts and stuff. I have a few in my discord who are just artists who, you know, they like to enter like art competitions and these sorts of things. And they're not interested in the sciences at all, but they're still, I think independence is the one core theme that tends to run through most INTJs and their work. Mm hmm. Yeah. That's probably why they link to Enneagram five so much, because there's a very independent element to that Enneagram type as well. You'll find a lot of NTs. They trend around if you were to just collect the population around science and technology. But you can literally be in any kind of field and be any kind of type. That's just where the statistics lie. It's quite interesting, actually, listening to what um what you said there because in my um there's two things one is independence is massively important to me um to the extent i'm almost unemployable i have to work for myself and um the other thing about the art and science is i try and make my psychology a cross between art and science and i often say it's it's a cross between art and science and the use of psychometrics is a cross between art and science and it really infuriates some people but that's how i see it that there's um it's an art art science <laughs> so it's just interesting hearing you say that i agree i mean i think that's the reason why we have like bachelors of arts of psychology and a bachelor's of science in psychology or a master's of art science both because i think it's really one of those special fields where you could never touch a research paper if you wanted and still make a full career out of it you know and be helpful and even inspiring to others when it comes to your ideas and thoughts 
Yeah, and I think I think with the way I work as well, I use I, I use a lot of scientific knowledge and theories and things that have been proven, but I also use a hell of a lot of instinct as well. Um, just go with what seems to fit. And I guess as well that that thing of being a introvert, intuitive, and being able to see how things connect, I can very quickly sort of um, form a pattern of a person I'm working with or something based on several different theories and mishmash them together. So that yeah, so it's it's not a straightforward scientific process, I guess. I would say, um, and I think this leans this leans more towards the the arts side of things, but I very much prefer project working projects that I can start build from the ground up and then finish and set it aside. Um, I mean, I'm, I've, I think uh, even, even working in larger organizations, I've always set up s sort of an independent shop. Not that I didn't depend on others in the, in the organization, but always sort of, I, I, I prefer to find my own ways of doing things. And I think especially when it comes to, um, yeah, larger organizations, uh, places that have been around a while, that there are a lot of structures in, that have been in place for a long time that can be, can tend to be quite ossified. And <laughs> there's other ossified structures that are built on top of those. So I, I, I in many cases, prefer to either start from scratch or to clear out as much as possible um, to get as close to a, as, as, as minimal a starting point as, as I can come to, especially starting, starting a new job. If you're stepping into somebody else's role, you don't want to, I mean, you don't, you don't cast anything aside for its own sake. Like, Oh, this is how, this is how everybody does everything. Let's do it a different way. I mean, sometimes those things work. There are systems in place that do work structures that work, but, um, I've always, I've always found, um, I've always found myself just, there's always a voice in the back of my mind. that's just like, how, how much, how much can we, how much can we clear out? How, how, how clean a space can we, can we make here to, um, to start from? Um, yeah. If I can share, I, when I was in first grade, there was a, an assignment that our class was given where we we had to create a career journal and the culminating image from this assignment was a picture we drew on the last page of the journal depicting what we wanted our or what we thought our future career might look like and on that last page i i drew a picture of myself as the manager at a taco bell which is uh funny because I don't like Taco Bell, but I, I knew from a very young age that I I wanted to be in a leadership role. And it's only in more recent time that I've come to realize that's that desire doesn't stem from a place of wanting to have power over other people, but it's more in an effort to avoid others having power and control over my work. And so that has been something I've I've pursued in many of my work roles, whether it's been as a, a freelance performer or tech consultant, where I might have a client, but I don't I don't have a supervisor. Or as um, 
someone who has been, when I have worked within institutional settings, I gravitate to positions in which I can serve as a, a mentor, coach, leader for other people. And so that's, that's what I have looked for in, in the work that I've pursued. It does lead back to that theme of independence that everyone's talking about. It's like you want to be a leader also because it gives you a certain level of independence and that people don't have that kind of control onto you. And I think sometimes there can be that need for independence that INTGs have because introverted feeling and extroverted thinking together can have some sort of desire for creative control over its work sometimes too. And so that requires level of independence for you to get that kind of creative control. And Bernadette? Mm, I actually discussed this with my friend yesterday to compare how we approach work because I wasn't sure if I um, approach work any differently than anyone else or if it's a factor of me, a factor of my environment, factor of cognition and stuff. Um, I noticed that I tend to approach work and I the the general strategy in which I approach it is split into three parts. So the first part is like observe. The second part is determine what the goal is. And then the third is test, iterate, test, iterate until you get to that point. Um, so I, I guess this works because um, I've always worked in a sales structure, which tends to be broken out into quarters, which is three months. So for the first month, I spend that intensively observing everyone, everything, taking notes on everything, you know, so I will put time on everyone's calendar. Um, I will ask to join on every single meeting, but it's almost as if I'm not there. They call it like shadowing because you won't notice that I'm there. I'm just taking notes and like logging everything, understanding, picking up like, oh, mm, they've repeatedly said this. What does that mean? Okay. This comes up a lot in conversations. What does that mean? And then I log this into like my master document in a sense where it's like I have everything from day one where I've started and then I start collecting it into themes like okay I'm seeing this occurring repeatedly in conversations what does that mean and then at the end of that first phase typically I start narrowing down on what is the what is the desired outcome what are we trying to get to here you know and by what point and then um I clarify that and usually it's like a list of like one to three things. And then I start going, okay, based off of what I've observed, what am I trying to get to? What do I need to measure to know whether I'm tracking in that direction well? And then I start setting up ways to measure that. And then basically it's like test iterate. Okay, I think this might work. I'm gonna test this out. I'm gonna measure it. I'm gonna see whether that brings me closer to that goal. I'm gonna test iterate until I get to that point. Um, and I've noticed that no matter what job role I've done, it's always been kind of that general, you know, three phase approach. Um, in terms of day to day, um, I've been described as pretty organized. I list the night before all the meetings that I have to do beforehand. And then I write down all the tasks that I want to get to um, doing with subtask. And then at the start of the week, I'll block out kind of like focus time where I'm like, okay, do not disturb me at these hours. I'm focusing on this, 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 and like learning time as well. Um, I would say that one thing that I have noticed is I 
work so much better working remotely than I did in the office. Working in the office was very, very stressful for me. Um, there were like, I worked in an open office and kind of like lots of sounds, not being able to just zone in and focus on one thing for a continuous period of time. Um, feeling like at any one point I could be asked to join a conversation. That, that was pretty stressful for me. Um, and I think the other thing that I realized is um, I might try to be organized so I can get things done faster so I can have the rest of the day to not do anything, basically. So it's like, I, I love kind of like, oh, your job's supposed to be from nine to five. And then I'll think, mm, okay, what do I need to get done for today? Can I finish it between nine to 12? So then I have the rest of my day from 12 to five to do nothing. And I didn't like being in the office because if I finish by 12, everyone would kind of look at me strange if I just went, right, I'm done for the day, I'm going home now. So um, I love working from home because if, if I'm done for the day, I can just read, I can go for a walk, I can do whatever I want for the rest of the day. Um, as, as a result of kind of this observing period, another trend that I've noticed come out is I don't always do what's been asked of me. Like if someone told me, oh, Bernadette, you should do this as your next course, I will evaluate it myself to be like, mm, is that necessarily the best course of action if we're trying to get to where we're going to? Will that have long-term implications that might not be good? And I will oftentimes, I won't necessarily say it, I'll just start doing what I think might be a better course of action. And then after I have the results, then I go, okay, I did this instead. And these are the results that came out of it. Yeah, you have a bit of a standard operating procedure that you've created on your own, of your own. That's good. A lot of extroverted thinking right there. <laughs> a lot of efficiency and effectiveness, just so you can chill later. It's like, yeah, now that I've finished everything, I can chill and be in my own mind and do my own thing. That's great. <laughs> Bernadette, I, I resonate a lot with what you were saying initially and in that you, you, you approach your day-to-day -day in a very methodical uh, approach. Uh, I've noticed that if I could summarize essentially what my thought process is throughout the day, it's why, to what end, and how. Um, so why do we do the things that we do? Why do we approach patients the way that we do? Or why do we have this um, policy in place or this guideline in place on managing patients this way? Um, and if it's why we do why we even use a medication that we do for patients. I say, well, to what end do we use this? Is this putting a Band-Aid on, on the, the thing that's out of normal? Um, or is it actually treating the underlying cause? Is this going to actually treat what it needs to do? Um, and then the other part of my job is, is not just patient care, but it's also setting up, setting up those policies and those guidelines on ways that we can streamline approaches for patients. And so, um, again, it's evaluating, well, why do we do this? And how can I improve this? And to what end would we use this? So uh, I really appreciated your, your perspective because it's something that I've noticed I myself do as well. Mm, it was actually something that was um, mentioned. So when I 
took on this manager role, I called up a lot of um, people that I had previously worked with or reported to. And one of the things they said is, Bernadette, be careful. You know, it's like um, you tend to approach things and you question a lot why things are set in place. And that means you don't necessarily um, take things as it is, you know, because you're constantly questioning, like, why is this the way it is? Why is this set up? You know, could it be better? What are we trying to do here? And then he said, well, you know, now you're entering a little bit more of a managerial position. You need to be a bit more wary of the fact that sometimes some some people like it the way things are. You know, some people may have put their names onto suggesting certain procedures for things, you know, and, um, you know, he was saying, like, be careful not to make any enemies without you knowing because you just state like, oh, why is, why is this the way it is, you know, and then kind of like what started out as maybe actually for from my end an honest inquiry, just like a question, you know, can sometimes be taken as if I'm challenging and trying to change the order of things. It's not necessarily the case. I'm just trying to understand, like, why is this in place? You know, why is this, um, why is this the way it is? You know, yeah. Yeah, that goes back to Angelina and when she was talking about how she'll go to an interview and she'll say something and then the interviewer is like, oh, you're challenging me. And she's like, huh? Yeah, I said something that was questioning them. <laughs> and then, yeah, they, <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating. <laughs> I think to, to pick up on something there that Bernadette and, and um, Lauren were both saying, that, that idea of something being long-term and addressing a root cause rather than a Band-Aid. Um, funny enough, in the, in the workshop I was in yesterday about type, we were talking about the difference between NI and SE. Um, as functions and um, what struck me was how se it's it's very immediate it's immediate action it's do what needs to be done now and i i really feel like that's something i need to bring a lot more into but at the same time it just feels so wrong <laughs> you know to do and i, I can sort of see the benefits of it because you know sort out the short term but my my gravity would always be pulled to yeah but if we're just sticking a you know, sticking our finger over the leak, we need to really find out why it's leaking in the first place. So I really agree with with what they were saying there, that it needs to be a, a long term and, and is there a way of improving it? Um, and even what, um, I think, was it, was it Jasper saying, like stripping things down to, oh no, maybe Michael was saying, stripping things down to just what's necessary as well and getting rid of all the, the fluff and stuff. Um, but also it made me think when uh, when Bernadette, you were saying, you know, as, as you get more into manager, managerial stuff, it's almost like you have to accept and promote stuff without questioning it or without. Um, and that feel, that fills me with fear, that idea of having to agree with something maybe that I don't and, and promote it to other people to sort of have the one organization or one team face, because I think that um, that, that focus on truth, I, I really tried to curb it as I've got older, but um, it's still there. Um, it's very hard to, to sell something you don't believe in, which is why I'm really bad at sales as well. <laughs> well, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I worked, I worked, I was a sales rep for seven years and I mean, it's just traveling all the time, meetings all the time. I mean, it's the, it's the thing that I'm just least suited for generally just constantly running around and selling. But, um, but yeah, I can't, I, I, 
I can't not be myself. I'm not much different at work than I am on this, on Joyce's <laughs> channel. You know what I mean? Like, I can't, I, I just, I just can't like, it just, it just feels like it, it feels like I start grinding my teeth if I have to put on some sort of persona. So I just, I just, I just, I've just done that less and less. And I really don't, I really don't put on a, put on a front anymore. And as, I mean, in something like sales, that's refreshing to somebody that you're, that you're selling to that, like, you know, you, that there's a certain, there's a certain tone that you're conveying information. And in if you really believe what you're saying, and there's a certain tone you convey information. And in if you have your sales process down and all of the steps, and here's how you proceed through a negotiation. And these are the steps. And this is the pit, this is the, you know, 30 second elevator pitch for X, Y, and Z. Sometimes it's not a good product. This isn't a good product. It's not a good fit for you. You know, sometimes you give a price and it's the price. This is the price. I'm not, we're not like, this is, this is a fair price. You draw out the, you know, here's, this is, you know, I don't like playing games, you know? So I think um, I'm, I'm glad to not be working in a, in a sales role anymore, but I feel like it was very, it was very valuable experience um, because uh, you, it's just, I just feel like it's just always good to be honest with everybody and I don't have to keep track of my lies all the time, you know? <laughs> it, actually came up as a thing because um, if I were speaking to someone who might be buying something, if throughout the process I thought like, you don't actually need this, I'll stop it and I'll say, I'll save you some time. You don't actually need this. You know, it's like, this isn't actually something that you need. And then, um, you know, like I definitely had some people tell me like, oh, Bernadette, you're losing a deal. Why would you say that? You know, it's like you're, you're losing a deal. And then I'd be like, what is the account value of this? You know, it's like, what, 5,000? Okay, let's go ahead and go after like really big, big target accounts where the deal is more like 50,000, right? You know, so um, it definitely came out because um, it's, it's kind of interesting because in the interview process, I notice as I'm helping my friends prepare for interviews, they'll be like, oh, what do I need to say to make myself like an appealing candidate? A large part of the interview process for me is also vetting the company, vetting to make sure that it's like, oh, is this something that I would actually want to sell? Do I legitimately believe in the quality of this product? And that that comes out in the interview process. It's not just I'm answering questions, but I'm also going, how's your product developed? What was kind of like, um, what are some challenges that you're seeing? What's the product roadmap and such? Because I know that'll come out in a conversation in which if someone, um, if I don't really believe that it's well-made, I can't necessarily sell it with confidence. I can't say like, I would recommend you to get this. Basically, you're all the opposite of snake oil salesmen. <laughs> yeah, if your authenticity process doesn't see that it's the right pick, then you're like, nah, you know what? I can, I can find something else. <laughs> I can do something else. It also takes the pressure off of, off of interviews in the first place, because if I'll always go in as myself, because if, if you don't like me being myself in this context, then we're not going to work well together. You know what I mean? But it takes the, it takes a lot of that pressure off for the, the, the interview anxiety off because, okay, I'm going to go in and meet with person one, two, and three. And if they don't like me, then it's not a, it's not a good if we don't like each other, then it's not a, it's not a good fit, you know?
Yeah, and it can also be applied to dating too. So, I mean, <laughs> if you that, it, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's true. All right, cool. And so, my next question for everyone is, how do you think INTJs are like in leadership roles, or how are you like in leadership roles? You don't have to answer on behalf of your entire kind. That's pressure. I've I've never actually been drawn to leadership because of the just the idea of having to deal with other people. Um, but if I was, it would be like Jasper, it would be so that I could influence ideas and direction. And the only time I was in a leadership role was um, I was the president of the, the British um, type association for a few years. And um, at first, when, when they said, do you want to be the president of it? I was like, no, I don't know anything about leading a thing. But in the end, I did, because no one else would. And um, it was actually, it was quite a big learning curve in how to deal with people because I would do a lot of the INTJ thing of saying look I've had this idea we'll all do this and they're like how do you know it's going to work and I'm just like trust me I've thought it through I've got it there you know the mysterious thinking stuff that went behind it was all hidden in my head and it taught me a lot about having to um, really take people through the process and get them on board um, and get them to, to win your trust um, to, to do things and, and it actually worked out really well i even won a small prize from the um the american um apti for leadership which really surprised me um but that's the only time i've been a leader and it was much more about influencing ideas and direction and the people side of it quite frankly was a, a bit of a pain in the butt <laughs> so. if only you could fast forward all the people stuff and just do the behind the scenes stuff of just working the direction without having to interact with the people. So that's why there are a lot of INTJs who appreciate the secondhand leadership role. So they get to support the leader so that they don't necessarily have to interact with the people, but they can change things too. I was going to say that I think a unique role that we don't mention enough when it comes to the INTJ is that secondary leadership position, but also just in general consulting. Like they don't even necessarily need to have some sort of authority within whatever it is that they're, um, you know, working with having their own private consulting business is something that is interesting. I actually, I had a physics professor from Japan. I worked with him for like 10 sessions because he wanted to create his own personality model. And he was like, I need to have someone who knows a lot about personality. So he paid for like 10 hours of my time and I acted as a consultant with him and there was no transition of authority between the two of us it was like i'm i'm paying you because i want your opinion and i think that's something that could be uh a good position for many intjs out there once they've kind of honed their their skill their trade their craft i think there are almost different kinds of leadership so for example i wouldn't say that i'm in a position of leadership in my current uh department like i'm not at the administrative level um but that said I also tend to be in a place of, of influence. Um, I try to kind of what you guys are saying, take on like a secondary leadership role, almost because I don't know if I'm yet at a place where I can fully commit to taking on the label of the head of all of these people. Um, so because of that, instead I try to take on a place of, or take on a role of influence, like I'll set up um, small educational sessions for other pharmacists that aren't specialized in critical care, but provide um, educational material for them. And I also 
try to um, set up book clubs. Like I've set up a book club for our department. And so there's like small things that I do that might be considered influential, um, but not necessarily holding that place of authority. Uh, so that's probably my relationship with leadership as it stands now. I would say um, I, if it's one of, like I was, I was mentioning before, pro- some projects have a defined beginning and end. If it's a project like that, then I prefer to be in the leadership role, especially if, it, if it's important to me. On an ongoing basis, I, I would prefer to be uh, not leading a, um, an organization or a, or a project that just it has no, has no defined end. Um, I worked early on in a lot of, uh, toxic work environments and I loathe unhinged people in leadership roles and rule by fear kind of, kind of tactics. And, uh, I, I also, passive aggression or, um, apathy. I mean, there's, there's certain, there's certain things that I, I, you know, you have to, you have to really cut these, cut these things off and, and be, be kind of brutal in those cases that we're not going to put up with this. So if somebody, I mean, if you get those red flags working with somebody that, you know, there's any amount of toxicity or something, I have no, I have no time for this. I don't care if you're above me on the, on the ladder or, or, or below me. Um, so there are certain things that there are certain things that I don't, I don't care how much control I have. I'm sort of going to speak my mind about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, but in general with leadership, yeah, if it, it, I like, I like well-defined projects that I know that, you know, we're going to be able to complete this and then, and then set it aside. And in those cases, I prefer to be, um, in the leadership role if, if possible driving it. So it seems like when there's the void of appropriate leadership, if there's no one who is capable of being a leader, you will step into the void. If it's like incompetent people leading it, it's like, well, you know, doing it myself is a little better than having that person do it. So <laughs> I, will, I will take that. <laughs> yeah. And I've done a lot of doing it myself, which is taking on sometimes too much of the, the workload for something gotten better at that but sometimes it's just sometimes you just don't want to deal with anybody <laughs> you might you might take on take on um more work than you should i feel like at least i do yeah so there are themes of energy management and also peopling that come up so i'm wondering what is your capacity for peopling in the workplace how much people interaction can you take? How much do you enjoy? How much do you prefer? I think that really depends on the specific people. Are these competent individuals? Are they, <laughs> are they easy to work with? And to relate it back to the previous question, I tend to approach leadership with a very collaborative frame of mind. I want to empower any followers with as much uh, authority and power as I can. And that has, in some contexts, that's, that's not the right fit for people. And I've had someone say I'm not a good leader, because I wasn't willing to be a, a drill sergeant to them and like command them to do things. And that's just not, that's not my style. 
if you don't <laughs> if you don't want to do this then then don't i i don't feel like i should have to force anyone to do anything like that and i found that in in situations where i've had a leader above me the ones where i've thrived is where there is a leader that adopts a very similar mentality in having us feel almost as equals with receiving ideas, communicating, planning. And maybe at the end of the day, they they technically have the final say, but that's about the only distinction that I like to see in the leader and to have as a leader. And in fact, I really like the, the co-leadership model where you either have another person or a committee of people that are cumulatively responsible for things and in an organization that I was a part of in the past, I was a co-president with someone else and it worked incredibly well in that we had different strengths and different leadership styles and they complemented each other really well. The, the counter to a, a good leader position, I've been in an organization, it was a government based, so it had a very rigid five layer hierarchy and I was at level two. So I only had one level beneath me. And I, I asked my supervisor, for I made a, a time off request and I did this many months in advance and it, it was a very simple request that shouldn't have required much processing but she took ages to 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 respond to that and I happened to encounter the boss of her boss who was the sort of director of the entire organization and we ran into each other at an event and we're just talking casually because I also like that not feeling like there's a huge barrier between me and, and leaders within an organization. I like the open door policy where you can feel uh, welcomed to share your ideas with anyone. And we were, we were casually chatting and I mentioned, Hey, yeah, I submitted this time off request and I'm just waiting to hear back. And the person right there on the spot said, Oh yeah, that's approved. You can have it. And that was great. However, when it got down to my boss, she felt upset that I had gone multiple levels above her, which wasn't an intentional or malicious act. But I don't like inefficient leadership either, where you just you can't deliver the results that are that shouldn't take that time to deliver. Yeah, unnecessary hierarchical red tape processes that you have to go through a lot of unnecessary kind of hoops and loops. Um, so Something really interesting. Let me just say, bureaucracy does have does have a function. It's a sinister function, but it does keep it does keep it does serve the interests of uh, of of some heavy heavy bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, something you mentioned, Jasper, was about how you don't like to kind of micromanage people, is what I'm hearing, and I think it goes back to how all the INTJs were talking about root causes. You know, Angelina and Lauren were bringing up you want to get to the root cause. Like trying to force people even harder to do their job isn't actually getting to why they're not liking their job. It's like if they're feeling resistance in the position, it's better to implore why and try to like fix the why better than to try to force them to do the task, the what even more micromanagey or like even forcefully because it's not actually solving the problem. It's just putting your finger into the pipe that has the leak of water and you're like, oh, I'm not going to find an actual solution. I'm just going to temporarily get people to do what they're supposed to do in the moment, but not actually fix the underlying issue at hand. Um, but yeah, Michael, you had your, your passionate rant. <laughs> 
I just heard bureaucracy and had to. And I think Michael's completely <laughs> right in that uh, there is a place for that. For example, uh, if you want an actual drill sergeant in the military, you probably want an ESTJ. Like you literally want someone who's going to beat them into being what you want them to be. But at the same time, you probably want someone else who's within that organization who can give the creative direction and vision, maybe like the ENTJ somewhere alongside that. So I do think that there is a place for that style of leadership. And I've actually found that there's people, I think even someone mentioned where Jasper, where they were like, you've had people under you who were like, I wish I had that kind of authority over me because it makes my life easier to not have to make those decisions myself. I've met plenty of those types of people as well who want someone to just give them to the direction to move in and they will go. Um, and they'll work very hard in those positions, but you have to find that kind of congruency between the leader and the worker for it to work. I think it's good to have exposure to and practice with all of those different styles too, because um, different people, I mean, especially if we're talking about leadership roles again, I think Joyce, you'd moved on, but just, I mean, when it comes to management, different, different people need different approach, require different approaches, you know? I, working with working with uh, going back to the arts again, but working with actors, sometimes you have to, you're being very delicate and you're sort of shaping. You have to you have to work with somebody to shape a performance. And with some, that's that's an incredibly obnoxious approach, and you have to go to them and say that wasn't good. We're running out of time. Like, what's what's the problem here? You know what I mean? So it's like it's like that in any in any context, though. I think different. I need to be. I if someone's managing me, I need to be managed in a certain way. I don't like playing games and and you know, certain things, but, um, it's, I think it's good to, it's good to be able to step into those roles, which is just, just sometimes just speaking on a different register with a different tone, um, when it's, when it's appropriate. I think I can answer the peopling and energy management one first. So in my first kind of like official job, this was a very significant challenge for me this this was a very very big challenge in which um i i think if i were to evaluate myself the biggest area of challenge for me would be non-adaptability in which i find it i find myself having a certain level of inflexibility towards things just changing last minute you know it's like um there's a certain lagging response that i can note in myself towards that so in the first job that I had, I, I found it really difficult to continuously context shift from it's like talking to a client, talking to a coworker, talking to a board meeting. That was really, really exhausting for me because I think my mind prefers to take a little bit of a distance from reality and observe and preempt a lot of things. So things that I'm doing right now, maybe I preempted 20 seconds ago, you know, um, and when I have to kind of like react to certain situations, which maybe I haven't figured out the general flow of it yet, it's very difficult because effectively I have to push myself to the surface. I have to push myself to be very, very present. I found methods to do that. Like for example, focusing on my breathing, focusing on very, very specific sensations like physical sensations to keep myself grounded but it was extremely exhausting to do that for prolonged periods of times. After a certain hour, I can feel my mind just recoiling back and wanting to like retreat into itself. Um, 
so that was a pretty big issue in my workplace in which um, by the time that lunchtime hit, I was very, very exhausted. And the way that I used to decompress was I'd go for a walk um, for lunch on my own. And then I'd go to the pier and I'd just stare out at the sea blankly for the next hour or so. That was my thing, just eating a sandwich, looking out and just going, hmm, right. And, and that was very necessary for me. But unfortunately, I, I don't know whether that was interpreted very um very well by my coworkers. You know, I had several coworkers go, oh, why doesn't Bernadette want to be friends with us? Why doesn't she want to hang out with us? You know, why doesn't she want to talk to us? That wasn't the case. I was literally extremely exhausted mentally from pushing myself to the surface of like having to react to everything. And then um, I needed that time for my mind to kind of like retreat in itself before I could be okay again. And so getting this feedback, I was like, oh, that's that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to seem as if I'm not wanting to be friends with my coworkers. So I would push myself during lunch hour to just sit there in like the communal table with my lunch and just like sit there. But I couldn't even manage to say anything. So I would just sit there nodding quietly while I was eating my sandwich just going, mm. <laughs> you know, um, that that didn't necessarily work very well in terms of seeming friendly either. So peopling and energy management were a big issue. Um, it, it kind of like, it kind of led to a little bit of like, um, I know in one of the, when I asked you for like, what are possible topics, you said quirky INTJisms at work. One of the things that started happening was um, I found that it was extremely calming for me to be in a place of like, low sensory stimulation for certain periods of time just to relax. Um, so I would <laughs> I would take a banana into an isolated phone booth, which was noise canceled everywhere. And I would turn off the lights. And I would just eat my banana there. And <laughs> my coworkers found it really, really funny because I would just sit blankly in the dark with no sound eating a banana. And that was like my recharging moment. So peopling and energy management were very big to answer that first question. That was a really interesting imagery. <laughs> yeah, you, you always want a submarine that you can just climb into at some point in the middle of the day. <laughs> And just like let it sink for for a little while, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I, one of the things that I appreciated about um, the early managers that I had was he noticed this and he was like, "Oh, I know that you're not intentionally trying to, you know, not be friends with anyone. Um, you just need that time to recharge." So he booked out the wellness room every day from like one until two. And he said, like, you can do whatever you want. You can be there, lock the room. No one's going to disturb you. You can turn off the lights, turn off all the sounds, you know. And I would just go there and nap for an hour. And that was great. I, that, that was everything that I needed. Um, in terms of leadership, um, I thought of this as well. So I... I don't necessarily feel very comfortable stating this, but there is a huge amount of care that I put into everyone that I consider to be my team, in a sense. As in, 
when I'm interviewing someone, I, I don't have that level of care yet. <laughs> you know, it's still like that vetting process. Like, hmm, I'm trying to vet primarily for the skill set and also whether they want to do, whether they'd like to do the job or not. But once they're in, I kind of extend quite a huge amount of care towards them in the sense that I devote quite a bit of time to understanding them on a one-to-one -one basis. Like, what are your strengths? What are your areas of challenges? What do you want to get to? What are your aspirations? What are your dreams? And I talk to them on a one-to-one -one basis. Um, I have logs in my mind of things that I've learned about them and things that I know they value, and I take that into account, basically. Um, but there's actually a huge amount of care that's being put in there. It's definitely, I would say, a fairly emotionally involved process for me. Um, so I would say that it's like a lot of, in terms of um, leadership, there is a huge amount of prioritization on the well-being of people who I consider to be in my team, you know. Um, this extends in lots of multiple ways, like, for example, knowing them one-on-one, -on -one, getting to know and understand what they value, what's important to them. And then I make special notes in my head. Like, for example, I notice one person in my team really like egg tarts. So every single time I went out for lunch and I walked past the egg tart shop, I'd buy her an egg tart. But I didn't want her to know that it was from me. So I just leave it on her desk and then I just walk away, you know. So I, I just kind of go like, here you go, because I noticed she really liked egg tarts. So I was like, right, leave, you know. So um, there's a lot of care being put into noticing those things and noticing certain dates that are important to people like, oh, okay. Oh, this is their son's birthday. Every single time I, I'll put it on my Google calendar, every single time that date hits, I'll say like, hey, how's your son? You know, it's like, how is he doing? You know, um, so there's a lot of that. And in terms of the ways that that comes out more externally I guess like this is kind of like the the secret internal caring for them but then the external facing front is a little bit more like mm, I want them to believe that they can reach whatever their goal is with their own skill sets so if I notice that they have a certain strength like in the first team that I managed I noticed one person was a bit shy on the phone and they were more comfortable you know um, writing things down. And one person on the team was very, very, you know, they were really good at conversation and they could speak and react to things very quickly. So then when they came to me and it came time for our strategy session, which is where we kind of plot <laughs> how we're trying to get to the end of the quarter, I would consider that. And then the first person said like, oh, Bernadette, I think I'm going to make a really sucky salesperson. I can't really talk to anyone on the phone. And I was like, don't think you need to talk to anyone on the phone to be successful. You know, like I noticed that you're really good at researching certain things and personalizing certain things in email. Why don't you do that? You know, it's like, why don't we make your strategy focus a lot more on that instead? Meanwhile, for the person who is like on the phone, he's like, I get so bored, like writing things. Like I get so bored looking at screens and I'm like, right, you're going to make 200 dials every day then. That's going to be your thing, you know? So it's like assessing where their strengths are and then kind of like 
I like to I I like for them to know that they can they can use that strength to get to where they want to. They don't need to be like somebody else to get to that point, basically. Another way in which that kind of care shows up is um, when, when I had two new team members join, I didn't want them to experience the first quarter where they didn't make their quotas, but I'm very careful to kind of protect their pride. So what I did was um, two months into a three-month quarter, I, I told my uh, chief of sales, I'm going to take some time off. You're going to give all of my clients to these two new teammates, and that's going to be contributing to their quota. But you're not going to tell them that I told you to do this. You're just going to tell them I decided to take some time off because I already hit my numbers, you know. Because I, I want to, maybe it's a sense of like, I want to protect, I don't want them to feel like, mm, I don't want people in my team to feel like, oh, I could only do that because Bernadette helped me. I want them to say, I can do that because I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like you do a lot of heroic acts without needing any of the credit you're just kind of doing them and then you're just fading into the darkness and it's like just don't let them know that I set off this chain of events and so it's like you you kind of know what certain actions will lead to a chain of events of, of causes and you kind of use that in a way that that helps people and so extroverted thinking is also a helping function it is actually like you know, extroverted feeling is the only function that gets the credit for helping people. But TE can really help people too. But it's more in a impersonal way. It's it's like in a, here are some tasks that I could do to help you. So uh, it seems like there's a lot of introspection and and thoughtfulness into your approach to the workplace. And you really do acknowledge diversity. So like, you know that diversity is a thing on your team and you use your ability to allocate the right skills. You know, TE knows how to put certain resources in the most effective roles. And so that's really cool, Bernadette. I've consciously, actually, this is a concept that I agree with, Asura. Like I saw one of your videos about like INTJs um, one of the skills that's important for them to do is to show appreciation. So for myself, I actually noticed this um, because I decided, like, I, I like to ask people on my team, how do you best work, you know, and I will adapt to you. You know, it's like, I'm, I would say that I'm not a very flexible person, but I will adapt for people that I have decided to take on care for, you know, so it's like, um, and then sometimes some people go, oh, you know, I notice some people need a lot of affirmation. They need a lot of that expressive, like, you're doing a great job. You're doing really well, you know. And basically the reason how I came across kind of the conclusion that you got to Asura was because I noticed that even though I felt a lot of those things internally, I didn't express it very much. Like if someone did something internally, I'd go, Hmm, you know, that's, that's really nice of them to do. That's really great. But I wouldn't say that what would come out more frequently externally is, I think you could do better if you did this, 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 this. But I notice what happens if I do that is 
how will they know that I appreciate them if I don't externalize that to them? You know, so I've been putting in more effort to, you know, hey, you did a really great job here. I think you did really well here. I really appreciate what you did here. And trying to be a little bit more mindful of the fact that, you know, recognizing effort. So sometimes I see people, you know, they, they try to like do something. And even though internally, I might be extremely aware of, think they could improve in this way, this way, this way, this way. And then there's this list in my head. But then I'm like, no, you know, but, but they try. I'm going to show appreciation for that. And then sometimes secretly, I will write letters of appreciation to them in which I'm like, you did a great job on this project. And I thought you did really well here and this thing. I really appreciate that. And I very consciously have to tell myself, right, I really appreciate that. And then it's like, yeah. Oh, look, Chris, your videos are positively benefiting people's lives. Yeah, I, I think, and that's not like my original idea. I literally just saw Briggs say that in Gifts Differing and was like, oh, wow, that's really amazing. I can't believe I missed that the first time I read this book. Um, but I think it, it really is even more so important when you're working with types who need that. Like, for example, I think a lot of the FJ types, like if you don't give them any of that appreciation, they're just going to quit or be miserable the whole time. Like they need some of that. But I know for me, for example, I don't need appreciation from boss or advisor. In fact, I think it's awkward. Like, I don't want to be told I'm doing a good job. I want to be told how I can be done faster and get to work five hours earlier. Like <laughs> some of us just here have mentioned. Um, so I, I do think that that is the congruency between leadership and work are such an interesting topic because there's so many different ways you can take it. And I think that's why type is such an important factor in it. Angelina, do you have any thoughts? It's okay if you don't. I just wanted to make sure you had a chance to talk to you. No, no, I'm okay. It's just um, what you were just saying there about the appreciation and recognition is one of those standards, you know, when you're helping people find their type exercises, isn't it? The, uh, the difference between the, the thinkers and the feelers. So it's just making me think of that. <laughs> it's awkward. Sometimes you get recognized and it's public and you just think to yourself, I did this, I did this to make my own, my own life easier <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> you know, it is. It is, uh, it is, it does feel, it does feel awkward. Um, but it's good to, it's good to recognize others because it does mean a lot to, <laughs> to some. So. Yeah. Trying to give good, good advice here, Joyce. <laughs> I've had to shift a lot of, um, I think one of the ways in which I definitely noticed like, coming into understanding of type has helped me is because it's like, mm, well, I, I, I guess I've always had that understanding that not everyone's going to perceive things the same ways as me, you know, but then having that shared, uh, that kind of like framework to be able to understand it, I can more easily kind of go, oh, okay, I think this person might be this type. Okay, this might be important to them. You know, it's like, I recognize that in certain conversations, for example, like some some people that I've worked with really value connection on that kind of like they want to ask me how my day is going, even though naturally I might kind of feel like that's not important. Let's just get to the agenda and let's just get to the meeting, you know, but then I have that understanding now where I'm like, oh, that's that's important for them. They want to feel that kind of like relationship bond, you know, so it's like 
okay, I, I see what they're, what they're trying to do. Okay, I can adapt to that. I can accommodate that. So then it's like, now when they're like, how's your day? How's the weather? I'm like, it's sunny. It's 15 degrees Celsius. It's quite nice for a walk today. You know, it's like, I, I try my best. Um, and likewise, kind of like, you know, realizing that I, for myself, I feel very awkward when I'm recognized or appreciated. It's usually been that case. And I usually share that a lot with people. So it's like when in a meeting, someone goes, oh, Bernadette, you did really well on this. I'll, I'll say, oh, well, um, these people helped me. You know, so it's like this person had this idea. This person helped me for this. This person helped me for that. Um, but then I do recognize that you know, I do notice that some some of the people that I work with, they enjoy having that recognition, you know, they enjoy being recognized in a public setting. So I'll try to do that a little bit more like you did a really great job on this project. I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> like trying, trying to do this, you know, so. I'm one of those people who likes recognition and likes those fuzzy words. Um, <laughs> and so we talked a little bit about quirky INTJ-isms at work. So what are your quirks at work? What is quirky about you in the workplace? I, I wouldn't say it's quirky, but I think that, that thing we talked about before about just being honest and being yourself and, you know, only using a little bit of persona here and there, um, like trying not to swear at work and things like that is about as far as it goes. Um, but generally turning up as yourself, um, surprises people and seems odd and that there's been people have used a phrase at me a few times and I don't know if they're trying to be nice or trying to cover up the fact that they're horrified but a few times people have met me and went oh you're a breath of fresh air aren't you and I'm like is that good is that bad what have I done um and I, I'm not aware that I've done anything unusual or different but I think sometimes that that thing that Michael was saying about you just you yourself you're honest you you tell the truth um i think that shocks people sometimes when to me it's like how i wish everybody else was <laughs> so don't know if it's a quirk but i think it surprises people but i think people also then will come come to come to you for your opinion because they know they're going to get an honest answer I've found myself, this is, a, I don't know if this is quirky or just kind of off brand, but I'm, I'm, I'm someone that people tend to come to, to vent or gossip, <laughs> you know, because, because uh, I'll sort of speak my mind about something or, and I'm also, I mean, you know, kind of a, kind of a brick wall when it, when it comes to that. So maybe I'm just a good receptacle for whatever kind, whatever needs to be, needs to be like vented out. Um, but I think people, I think people do appreciate it um there are a lot of bad meetings it's good to liven up a meeting with some you know like i don't you know what like i don't i don't really want to be here doing this today you know i have i feel anxious today <laughs> i just had a i just had a i just took a nap and had a had a very i was a human mailbox in a in a desert somewhere and now 5 minutes later i'm here talking to you i feel strange and where are we you know these kinds of <laughs> these kinds of things liven up the day, I guess. It's good to provide a little bit of entertainment to your <laughs> to your colleagues throughout the throughout the day. 
I'm very much the same way as, as Angelina and Michael in the sense that I do like to bring my, my full self to work, especially in um, an organization that can be so caught up in um, being so business oriented and maybe just work oriented to get, you know, patient care done. But um, oftentimes I bring myself to meetings and, and similarly say something like, oh, you know, like I'm a millennial, like I like my information like yesterday or just so quick to to desire information or I need a quick soundbite. Uh, and people, just small things like that liven up the the mood. And I think it just, it brings a humanness to to business meetings, business meetings when you, when you call yourself out. Um, and I, I suppose I like to bring some level of like authenticity to it too. Um, i trying to think of a specific example, but I can't. But I, I, all that to say, I just resonate with what you're saying. I, I tend to do the same thing. So one of the quirks that could be very anecdotal too is the theme of naps seems to be coming up because we talk a lot about energy management. It seems like it's like, oh yeah, naps. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in needing an afternoon nap, and I, I sort of try, try and blame it on the fact that I've got some sort of European genes and need a siesta. Um, but but definitely, I, I don't know if INTJs sleep well or, or not. I, I, my sleeping's random. Sometimes I have massive insomnia, and sometimes I sleep like a log. Um, but generally, it's usually messed up in some way. So the the idea of like that afternoon nap or suddenly getting tired is uh, is is there for me. Um, but there's also the thing of needing to um, escape every now and again. So even when I was training, I would just sneak off to the toilet for a while just to get away from people and have some peace or whatever. So, yeah, definitely a, a need to get away. But it's about the energy levels. Yeah, I think it can manifest in a few different ways, not necessarily having to be a nap because you know I'm not much of a napper myself. And but I don't think that means the other INTJs can't be. Uh, but it definitely does come out for me in the like escaping aspects where it's like if I go to an event or a conference or something last month, I was in an academic conference and two hours in, I was like, all right, I need to go find an empty room. Like I need to just go sit somewhere where there's nobody around and just recharge for like 30 minutes. Uh, and then I can go back and go to doing the people thing. And one thing that kind of has helped me with that back when I worked in retail and I was, I had to work with people all day long was like putting headphones in because you know, listening to music and working alongside people is very different from working with them and like talking to them all day. And even if you just do it for a little bit to get a break from the, the conversation, that's something that I found helped me. Yeah, it seems like you need to create a sensory deprivation tank of your own. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, Angelina. Uh, I was just going to say it's interesting because I, I actually work with really loud music on all day. Um, and I it's almost like I don't hear it, but I'd notice if it went off. If it, if it goes off and I'm in silence, I'm creeped out. But um, sometimes I, I'll not notice what's been on. But but if I had to hear people talking all day, then it would start to grate on my nerves. So there's a difference between like music and people talking for me. But definitely it provides um, some sort of different environment or space for me to think better in. Speaking of like weird quirks related to that, um, when it comes to like music and thinking and stuff, my wife will make fun of me because sometimes I'll take a song and if I want to think, I'll put it on repeat and I'm not listening to the song. It's just the song is acting as a white noise, blocking out everything else. 
that allows me to get into that state of deeper thinking. Um, and I think that it is part of that like sensory deprivation aspect where if you have one expected sensory input, it's like it's nothing at all, essentially. I do notice that I do something very similarly in which, um, especially for songs that elicit a type of thought, kind of like it, it spurs me onto an idea. And then oftentimes I will want to capture that idea and understand it fully. So I will put myself in that state of listening to that on repeat. Like I could listen to it for 10 hours on a loop and I'm trying to, basically I'm trying to build out that, like usually it'll be like, I'll listen to a song and then it's like a flash of something comes to mind. And I'm like, I, I, wanna, I wanna see that a little bit more. So I'll listen to it for 10 hours on a loop and I'll just kind of, it's, it's very unstructured though, because I'll just kind of daze there and try to see what comes of it. Um, in terms of quirky INTJ-isms, um, as my coworker said, I think um, eating bananas in the dark in a noise isolated room is definitely one of them as like a coping mechanism. Um, my coworkers actually created a series of photos of me on different days doing this, just eating a banana in the dark. Um, and I do relate to kind of like um, needing that kind of like escape. There's, there's a certain level in which like, I kind of want to be in the dark. It's kind of like, maybe the term is like rogue. I, I want for a certain point to be able to escape and for people to not know what I'm doing, <laughs> kind of like for me to be in that dark mode, you know? So it's like, funny enough, I always know wherever I am, kind of like where are places that I can go to escape to do that. And in one of my workplaces, I would go to the storage room um, and then I set up a 3D printer. So I would print out Pokemon figurines there and just, sit there for a bit just watching it print and that was very very satisfying um other quirks that I've um that I've been told is I think I I had several people say that I was um quote unquote cute because I was very awkwardly formal I'm wondering what what quirks have you heard about us <laughs> what, what what do we not know is quirky yeah, we can confirm or deny here. Sure, definitely. So something I noticed just from speaking to INTJs, like you lovely group here, is that like when you guys talk, it actually does sound like a little bit formal for some of you because of the the cadence, like there's a, a space between your words. So like you'll, you'll say words, but it's like your, your, I think it's maybe an Enneagram 5 speech pattern too. Like I noticed with Enneagram 5s and INTJs with a big correlation that they have like this, speech pattern where they're like they they say certain words and then they they do this um stop in this way that's like I'm like ooh this does sound kind of formal because <laughs> it's focused on the information and not necessarily always on the the uh, connecting like you're it's not necessarily like being like fe like how can I create the most optimal relationship between you and me it's more focusing on how do I communicate this information and the why in the most elegant way <laughs> you know Joyce I, th I think for me because I'm aware I do that well now you've mentioned it I am 
it, for me, it's like I've just said something and my head goes, and that is going to be massively misunderstood by everyone, isn't it? Because it's just like every time I speak, it's almost like I, I think, do I have to go back and explain this again? Or are they going to go off with the wrong idea? Because I find that I, I'm really great at being misunderstood, massively good at being misunderstood. So it's, it's a talent I have, if anything. I'm sure that's probably really relatable for INTJs. I just think that that if people don't understand you, it means on some level you are original because people need more hooks to understand original thoughts. So it's just a compliment within the the pain. Nice use of FE there. (laughs) One of the topics that I wanted to touch on when it comes to like the TE and FE differences and like communication and business and stuff. And I think that the TE very much takes the approach of professionalism, especially if it's in the more healthy state. So think of it like this, like you've got two restaurants, one of them is a Southern comfort restaurant, one of them is a five-star restaurant. Like there's going to be two very different styles of communication. When you go in, you go into that Southern comfort restaurant, you're going to be greeted by waitresses who are, you know, very talk they put their hand on your shoulder, that sort of thing. They want to connect with you. You know, you go to a five-star restaurant and they're there to serve you. They're there to give you a specific experience. They're there to cater to your, you know, individual like needs and to come off as professional. And I think that's something that the, the INTJ can do well. And if they develop that skill, peopling doesn't even necessarily need to be tiring to them. Uh, for me, I can get along with almost anybody, but it's because I... Pr- I approach communication in the through that lens of like professionalism. Like it's like we're having a business conversation almost. And therefore it, it doesn't necessarily drain me as much as necessarily like um like how my wife might communicate with someone as an ENFJ, where there's all these like emotions and feelings and they're talking about very specific things that are about their relationship with each other, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> I I do relate to kind of like approaching work with a certain sense of professionalism. I think um, oftentimes that when when I was in my first job, that made it kind of um, a little bit interesting for me because I had one person who um, decided to kind of latch on to me and was very determined to be my friend from work, you know, so um, they thought the way that I did things was interesting. And then they were very proactive and like, let me put my phone number in your phone book. And I was like, why do you want to do that? Oh, because I'm going to text you this weekend and we're going to go hang out in the museum, you know, and I would, I would be very like confused because I wanted to communicate with them in that professional way. And I'm like, but I think their intent is to be a friend. So maybe I should like communicate differently. How do I, how do I communicate to them like this way or that way? But I do think that it's like, um, it is easier for me when there's, a little bit of that like business structure um, in which, for example, in a meeting now I know like, okay, um, I have these agenda items. And then if I can, um, like my outcome here is trying to um, convey information and convey like what needs to get done. And that makes it easier for me to communicate because I'm just focusing on those two things. Um, It gets challenging when there's like kind of like work friendships and not necessarily knowing how to navigate that. I mean, I think, uh, and going back to Joyce, your, your point too, about the vocal cadence <laughs> of the INTJ, I feel like, and it's not, it's not really, uh, um, 
don't think it's really a conscious thing so much, but the the sort of body language and vocal timbre, like all of these things sort of follow what the mind is telling them to do. So it's like if I I've, I find that when I'm, you know, especially in a work context, if I'm really thinking through something and and try and just withdrawing a little bit into my own like natural rhythm, things get more staccato, they get more monotone, you know, so it's always like, I mean, if you're if 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 you're in a loud room, the mind is like, okay, you got to speak up and then you speak up. But if you're, I feel like if, if, if I'm caught up in a lot of things going on or I'm, I'm on sensory overload or something then I'll think things will sort of start to come out more clipped, a little more, a little more sharp and not necessarily minding the environment, minding the situation I'm in. Um, but I think those things do follow from whatever story, like right now we're doing, I feel like I'm hanging out now when we do these recordings. Right. So we're doing like, but I to have this, you know, it's like, Oh, we're doing camaraderie now, you know? So if, <laughs> move your, move your, move your hands around, laugh at all of these kinds of things. I mean, it sounds really robotic to describe it. And like I said, it's not a conscious thing, but it's like, I sort of, I find myself sort of shifting, shifting modes depending on the, depending on the situation. But if I lose track of that, then I sort of, withdraw again into a much more stereotypically, I guess, INTJ kind of, uh, kind of rhythm. Yeah. When I hold INTJ panels, there's a very like calm, neutral demeanor the INTJs have. And I'm like, very, very INTJ. And so my last question for everyone is what kind of things do you think INTJs look for in the jobs that they go in? What advice would you give to an INTJ looking for work, career, job advice on on where to go, what to do? I actually think that if you're a, a young INTJ, like you're kind of like getting out of high school, I think it's actually really beneficial to work a kind of like standard job. And, and almost for anybody, actually, like go get a retail job for like two years, like and see how life works. Because I think that's something that a lot of types, even the especially the NT types who want to go into the more like, you know, hypothetical jobs and stuff they go into these fields and they forget that like there is a standard work structure almost anywhere you go unless you're self-employed so they'll go and get like degrees and stuff and then they'll hop into a work field and have no idea how to interact with people and no idea how these kind of things works and then they'll get really frustrated and just leave or go be mad at people and not being able to interact um but for me working retail for just a few years i think really really helped me develop as an individual because it was out of my comfort zone, because it was something that was a very physical job, because it was something that forced me to do what I wouldn't normally be doing. And I think, especially in the younger years, that can be really beneficial. Yeah, I think that's always good advice is to, to get out of the comfort zone, especially for especially for younger, younger folks. I got, um, I mean, it's, it's miserable when you're when you're going through that. I sort of I my my own experience was I, I, in 2008, I moved to New York with no money as staying on a friend's couch, no job, nothing. And it was right before the market crashed. So I really had to hustle and work a lot of jobs that I was not comfortable, comfortable doing. At one point, I was an assistant at a uh, an entertainment agency, and it was the most toxic environment. It was like a real... 
I guess the devil wears Prada is probably the closest, uh, the closest analog to that. But, and it was, it was one of the most miserable times of my life. I was absolutely just crushed every day doing this, but with more of that experience, fast paced, chaotic, energetic environments, um, I, I don't know if I'd be as, as, as flexible as I am now and, uh, and as comfortable doing many different things in many different scenarios that I'm not necessarily on default. I don't feel like I'm, I'm suited to do. I mean, all that just comes with experience. So I agree with that a hundred percent that I think that out of the comfort zone kind of, uh, experience is, uh, is critical. I agree. I, th I think having, um, customer facing roles where you learn how to develop um, emotional intelligence and customer service. And, you know, so you, you know, by telling the blunt truth, um, you learn how to do that in a different way. Um, I think that's valuable for whatever it is you're going to go into for the future. So I'd agree retail work, um, things like that. I did all that stuff working in bars and pubs and restaurants and waitressing. And I think I learned a lot from doing that sort of thing and, and a lot about um, teamwork as well because um, it's a different sort of teamwork when you're working as a, a waitress and things like that and you're helping each other out and things and um, it's it's a nice way of doing teamwork compared to maybe the more serious career where you decide you don't want to work in a team and you go and work for yourself <laughs> so yeah I, th I think developing emotional intelligence early on is really really important I think one thing that I personally struggled with uh, in my in searching for careers is indecision. Um, and I think probably often an INTJ trait or maybe just my own uh, trait is, is indecision. Um, and so I think one thing that I might advise somebody to do is to just take a step forward, be more willing to, to take action or to go down a path because all information is is helpful. It'll either guide you closer to your path or, or farther away. But regardless, it's information that can be um, acted upon, of course, with some level of discernment. Like you have to have some level of discernment when, when going down a path. But sometimes I wish I would have um, taken advantage of more experiences before <clears throat> or to move forward. Um, and and gain more experience that way. And I think that lends itself, you know, beautifully with what um, Michael was saying, and that is that you are pushing yourself out of your comfort zone in a lot of these circumstances, because by trade, you're push pushing yourself out into the world to do something. So you no longer can escape inside your mind. And for me personally, get so caught up in that, in that indecision. And I think the other thing that I would add to that is, um, is having some grace for yourself in the process too because not all decisions will be the right decision or you know even a career that you're currently in now might not be your forever career so not thinking that you have to be so caught up in this one specific path for the rest of your life but you know you'll continue to evolve over time so um, things can change and they will change and so to to move and evolve with that to kind of bounce off that i think it's important for intjs to not get stuck in sunk cost fallacies with their their job field especially as ni dominant types they can pick their little major and then five years down the line they hate it but they've already told themselves it's what they're going to do so they're going to keep doing it and that's i think that's one of the really big dangers of going 
like head first into a field right after high school. I've worked with so many people in like their mid twenties and coaching who are like, I got my degree, but I hate my job field. And it's like, yeah, because a lot of people don't actually understand how the world works. And they think that there's only like three options and they pick the first one that looks entertaining to them. And then they don't actually enjoy doing that. So if you're, you know, I don't think it matters how old you are. Don't be afraid to step out of your field and try something new, which is what Lauren kind of talked about. And even if you don't like it, that's fine. You know, engage in that ESFP side of yourself for a little bit, play around with something. I played around with coding last year for like two months. And then I was like, ah, I put some time and money into it, but it really just wasn't for me. So I just dropped it and went back onto something else. And in the end, I still think it made me a better person for trying it and at least saying, okay, now I know that it's not something, even though in the back of my mind, I thought it would be something that I would enjoy. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if the indecisiveness Lauren talked about relates back to the sunk cost fallacy, as your psych brought up. It's about, hey, I know that if I want to commit to something, I actually want to commit to it intentionally and I want to stay with it in the long run. And I know a lot of people, they'll go, get into jobs and they won't enjoy it and they'll just continue it for the sake of continuing it for the next 20, 30 years. And I just don't want to be like that. And so I'm going to stay in a state of a little bit of indecision until I know for sure that I really want to stay on course on this trajectory. It's almost like you're so aware of the trajectory that it'll take you on that you want to take your time with specifically picking your, your marriage to your work. I do relate to that indecision and also thinking about whether it's related to sunk cost fallacy. Um, Apologies, this is not going to be my most organized trail of thought here. Um, well, something that I've noticed in myself is um, oftentimes I will withhold myself from experiencing something because I'm like, I don't know enough about this yet. I want to know more about it. But then recently I thought about it and I was like, well, how do I know more about it? How do I get experience? Well, by doing it. So it's like there isn't ever a time in which I will have 100% information on something and know for sure. And I need to be comfortable with that, even though that might be a state of discomfort for me. You know, it's like, um, so I've gradually, after noticing this, worked towards this kind of like, okay, the ideal for me, if I want to just fit with what's comfortable for me is to have 100% information before diving into anything, but I'm never going to get there. Can I... Can I be okay with 90%? Can I be okay with 80%, 70%, 60%, slowly getting less and less, you know? And um, I think one of the ways, one of the patterns of thoughts that have helped me the most is kind of going, well, I'm not stuck on this decision. You know, it's like, I think it might be, it might be easy for me to go, once I've decided on something, I want to build in it. I want to invest in it. But I'm not stuck to it. Kind of like maybe um, I don't know whether it stems from a place of associating somewhat of my identity with that. So cutting that and going, no, it's a lot more flexible than that. I can make a decision. I can then, you know, um, try it out. I can see whether I like it. And if I don't, I don't have to stick with that decision. I can say, no, I can change other pathways. That's not tied to who I am, you know, um, taking a little bit more, like, I guess um, that has helped me a lot in terms of kind of like that indecision, just
just going that I don't need to know 100% information before I move into anything, I will likely never have 100% information. And even though that's uncomfortable, I can get better at being okay with that discomfort. And I'm not tied to that decision. I can take input as it comes and adapt. Yeah. Adaptability <laughs> is the theme. Yeah. So it, it seems like it's a fear of the extroverted sensing. It's like you don't want to just do something in the moment without any intention or purpose behind it. So it causes an indecision. But it's like, just do the SE. Just jump in. Just just try it. Just experience it. <laughs> I guess to some degree, it's like owning that part of myself as part of me. That it's like um, maybe for a long time, my conception of myself is as someone who's you know, um, once I decide on something, I build on that. But that's not, that's not all I am. I can also take on parts where I can decide on something and change. I can experience something without necessarily always, like, if maybe the, the way, like, if I want to tie this to the cognitive functions, owning the SE is part of me, too. Yeah, not just the NI. The SC is kind of like the, the other half of it, the whole of it. Mm -hmm. That's really well put. And I think it also might have to do with lower down introverted feeling. And so when introverted feeling is in the third or the fourth slot, you kind of want continuity with your identity. So you kind of want to have it be something stable, something that you can actually like stick with, that you can go with. Whereas I noticed with the FP types, of course, like they, they're always thinking about their identity, but I noticed like when you have FI in the first or the second slot, you will be more malleable with changing your identity over time. And that's because like they have a higher up SE or any function. So they're okay with that ever flowing, changing identity with new experiences where it seems like for the INTJ pathway to growth and probably, probably TJs may also have this problem in general too. It's that like, the FI doesn't always want to be in a constant state of flux, <laughs> depending on the SE situation. It wants to have some sort of grasping of what that is. And so. I try, that's actually a pattern of thought that I try to challenge in myself. Whenever I notice that I start going, I am like this, I challenge it and I go, am I actually like that? Maybe not. Maybe I could be something different. If, for example, I think, Oh, I am a reserved person. Am I always? Not necessarily. Let's try out being a little bit more spontaneous. <laughs> Not necessarily very great at it, but it's like I can try it out. You know, it's like um, just trying out that mode of like exploring without committing. That's actually a form of spirituality. And so spirituality can be defined as letting go of smaller identities so that you can make room for a larger you. And so in the process, if you let go of I am statements, it, it, there is something very spiritual about that because you're shedding identities that do not necessarily have to be tied to you. This is also the case for anything you identify as yourself, even moods that shift all the time. Instead of saying I am sad or I am mad, there are certain cultures that kind of say sadness is there is sadness on me instead of saying that it is a part of you. And so detaching from labels or detaching from identities is actually a spiritual practice in, in its own way. So Jasper, do you have anything you'd like to say? Sure. I can certainly agree with a lot of 
what the other INTJs have shared regarding specific advice. And if there's an INTJ out there who's watching this and is suddenly feeling like they they have to go work in a, a retail environment or in, in a bar or, or somewhere that would probably not be an INTJ's natural first choice, <laughs> there are other ways to, to gain experience in that way. Um, I worked at a, a tech desk, a, te a tech help desk where people would call in and walk in with, with problems. And that gave me a lot of exposure to interacting with people. And it, it allowed me to interact in a comfortable tech-oriented domain, but there was still a lot of um, personal conversation and skill necessary that grew there. And if even if that doesn't sound like a compelling alternative, what I would advise is really focusing on the skill of active listening. And I've heard one definition of that, which I really like, which is to listen deeply enough to be changed by what you hear. And so if you are able to find yourself in any situation where there are other humans that you can interact with, sit back, observe, we're good at that, but then repeat back some of the things they're saying, engage in the conversation, ask them follow-up questions. These are important skills, I think, in life, and they will be imperative in a lot of different career settings. Even if you end up working for yourself, you're probably going to have to interact with others in all but a few careers. So there's that. And then to, to reemphasize the adaptability piece, I think that is crucial because, at least in my experience, the temptation is to plan indefinitely and never execute. And so I, <laughs> I have found myself in a number of situations where that's that's really not an option. Um, musical performance, I've been a, a professional musician for the last five years. And there's just an understanding that things will almost never go as planned when you are performing. And you have to grow comfortable with that fact and develop the skill set that allows you to adapt in the moment when things go off the rails or when the power suddenly goes out in the middle of a performance. <laughs> These are just things that happen. And if you can gain comfort with that, you can really start to thrive in many situations. And so I know not everyone can just enter into a professional musician type role, but um, I find that if you do volunteer work, this, is, this has been a really important domain for me to gain experience in. You'll find that in many organizations where you can volunteer, they are extremely appreciative for volunteers to come in and they usually don't have enough people. And so in turn, that means they often put you in situations which you might not be fully qualified for or that you, you don't think you're ready for. And it allows you to practice in a lower stake setting where your salary isn't on the line to, to gain the quick thinking resourcefulness set of skills. And that is, that'll get you really far in life. If you can listen well and you can, you can think quickly and actually respond to things. And then when you combine that with the INTJ's natural strengths of slow thinking, very deliberative, uh, optimized paths, you can be a very impressive person, I think. So uh, that's, that is what I would say for INTJs in a career sense. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think we can be, we can tend to be very hyper-focused types and be chasing after one 
career goal in in particular and uh i i spent my all of my 20s just jumping from one brutalizing traumatizing job to another and then feeling for a long time like what a waste of time that was like when did things go wrong when did i go off like away from the path of what I'd intended to do. And it's only, it's only after some time passes that you realize that, oh no, you're, bu you're building skills with all of, through all of those experiences. And especially, I mean, number one is skills with people and dealing with different types of people and especially dealing with incredibly difficult people sometimes. Um, my first job out of school was, was building out uh, new retail stores. So it was like, it was driving in the middle of the night to the middle of nowhere and then spending 14 hours hanging from a ceiling, like putting up light fixtures and then just, just beating myself up for the longest time. Like what a waste of time, the length, the amount of time that I spent doing that. But uh, a lot of what I'm good at now is logistics. And there was a heavy logistical element to that to that work and really getting practice in that outside of outside of my comfort zone it wasn't until years later that i realized how much of that that sort of you know i mean you have an instinct for something but then you have practice there and it's like that carries over and has carried over into everything i've done so even even things that as you're going through them i think we tend to all everybody tends to focus on what was um um what felt like a waste of time or what felt like a traumatic experience. But when it comes to something like work, even some of those, those more, if you do, and I'm not saying to seek these out, but if you do end up in, in those situations where it just feels, you just feel desperate all the time, you know, and feel like this is, this is, uh, this is absolutely pointless work. Um, it's not the case. It just takes, it just sometimes takes, takes a little while to realize that you can draw a thread from, from there to, to wherever you end up. And I'll just share one more piece. This is something that I think the world would benefit from in general and is approachable for most people to take a first aid course. And this might sound ridiculous, but there is something very comfortable about being the observer in situations. And when you are forced to develop skills and then actually practice them, where you have to see a situation occur and then make the decision to be a part of something in reality, uh, I think that can really help start the process of shifting the mindset and encouraging getting into action uh, more quickly. So uh, would highly recommend if you're into scuba diving. Uh, I've trained as a rescue diver, which <laughs> amps that up to the next level where you, you need to respond very quickly because underwater you don't have a lot of time for deliberating about what the best choice is. So um, I find in general, I'm a very calm person, and especially in the face of high stress, high chaos. And so those are situations where you can really be an asset, where you can maintain that composure and still encourage your, your own growth through that action orientation. And Angelina, do you have anything you'd like to say? I just wanted to give you the chance to talk if you wanted to talk. No, sorry, I'm just spilling something over my desk. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but no, um, no, it's, and I, agree, I completely agree that nothing has ever been a waste of time. It's all, 
it all leads to somewhere and, and it all helps you learn something. So I completely agree with that. Nothing's been a waste. It feels like it sometimes. Like I think I wasted three years working in psych and stuff. And I look back on it now. It's just the most invaluable time in my life. So, yeah, great. It all prepares you for whatever you're going to face next. So it all gives you valuable skill set. Or And meetings are meetings. Meetings are meetings. Anywhere you go, there's going to be meetings. And they're all the same. <laughs> they all work the same way. I wanted to, to bounce off what Jasper was saying, because I think he, he made a really good point in that, like, if you are one of the young INTJs out there, uh, you know, we're not trying to tell you which field you should go in to try and get these uncomfortable experiences. It's more so just about finding something that will get you out of that comfort zone. And there's a thousand or a million different ways in which you could do that. For me, it was retail. For Michael, it was like construction. For Jasper, it was scuba diving and his tech job. I just, and it, and that doesn't mean like if you want to go to college after high school, don't. It just means try to find something in your life that can get you out of that comfort zone. Because if you don't, you're going to hit a wall eventually. And then you're going to have to deal with it. And you're going to be a few years behind all the other people who dealt with it, you know, at first. And it's going to seem even harder at that point. Embrace that extroverted sensing experience. <laughs> Got it. Well, thank you, INTJs, for coming out today and explaining your career experiences. And so I, I, we just talked about during the panel how you all feel awkward during compliments. So this is quite hilarious. Just cut the video right here. No. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I Thanks, Joyce. We appreciate everything you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for hosting us. All right. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everyone. We'll see you all in the next episode. Bye.